Uh, so glad you guys are getting connected and listening to Dan and going outside your five-minute radius. I will say one of the things that, that Dan talked about was he said that all the announcements uh, were in the bulletin, so you didn't uh, you know, necessarily need to pay attention, but he'd like you to. I realize that there's a risk for me recognizing and saying that everything we're going to be talking about today is in the Bible, so you don't need to be listening. I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> No, no, no. We are so glad uh, that you are here with us this morning. Uh, if you're new here, my name is JP, and I love an opportunity to get to meet you after service. Um, but we are continuing our series called Arrows, Living Towards the Target, and specifically looking at various uh, family relationships. And so uh, we've looked at uh, previous generations, we've looked at siblings, we've looked at marriages, and today we're going to look at our kids. And so recognizing that as we talk about families, that this can be a heavy topic uh, for many of us. And so I would ask if you would join me in a word of prayer that as we begin, uh, that we would ask God's spirit to move in this place and that we would receive these words, not out of judgment or out of um, a feeling guilt, but recognizing that, um, that there is hope and that there is freedom and that even if we've made mistakes, it's never too late to live towards that target of helping to raise up our kids or to encourage our kids in the Lord. So if you will pray with me as we dive into God's word together. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for who you are, and I thank you for each and every person that is in this room or listening online later. Lord, I thank you that everyone that hears my voice, just as we heard during the communion time, everyone who hears my voice is deeply loved by you and how deep the love that you've lavished upon us that we may be called children of God. So Lord, I pray that we would have our eyes and our ears and our hearts open to what you would have for us. And as we dive into your word, I pray I would decrease, that you would increase, that you would speak in a personal, powerful, impactful way to each and every one of us. And I pray that, um, Lord, you would um, work in our hearts to receive uh, these words, not with judgment or guilt, Lord, but with freedom and hope. Uh, Lord, we love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, um, this past Wednesday morning, as I typically take Shaylin to school on Wednesday mornings, uh, and then I pick her up on Friday. She only goes to school two days a week, so she doesn't drive herself, don't worry. Um, but on Wednesday mornings, when I drop her off, um, I take her over, and you know, she was showing me the playground, and uh, she went over into the classroom. And it's one of those where uh, we're running a little, we're at the playground, the yard duty person's like, you got to go. And so I say goodbye to her, and she walked off, and I like walked out towards the um, the parking lot. And then like, once I knew she was down a little bit, I like looked back, right? And like, there's just something about seeing your child kind of going off into like outside of your control, outside of your shelter where you kind of, it's like these little mini releases. It's this idea of you're just kind of letting them go and you're like praying for them. You're like, I hope they have a good day. And I hope, you know, she makes friends or, you know, doesn't have any issues. And it's, it was just this reminder that so much of parenting are just these little releases, just these little moments in which we kind of let them go for the first time and they go to school or we see them as they get ready to, you know, go off and play sports or have drama class, not drama issues, um, be able to go and play, like whatever their activities are, but we release them, we set them off and we let them go. Or, or maybe when they go to junior high for the first time or for high school for the first time, or when they actually move out of the house and go to college. And then as a dad, I'm already like planning uh, what it's going to be like to, if the Lord wills that our girls to be married, to release them and to hand them off to a husband who prayerfully loves the Lord and seeks him first and would love, lead, and serve our girls well. And so just these ideas, these many releases that happen throughout our lives as parents. And here's the thing, that 
that kind of idea of a release can be really scary for many of us. And part of that is because we've realized that we're kind of releasing them into the world. We're releasing them into something that could be big and bad and scary and fearful and dangerous. And, and there could be this tension of not wanting to do that. So what do we hear? What do we see with parenting is that... Um, how many of you heard, have heard of the term of a helicopter parent? Have you guys heard of this term before? It's one where it talks about if you haven't heard it, it's one that's the idea of an overprotective parent that literally helicopter hovers over their kids at all times. Well, I heard a new term recently, which isn't quite applicable to San Diego, but it paints the picture really well, uh, called a snowplow parent. Have you guys heard of a snowplow parent? A few of you have. Okay, not many. So what a snowplow parent is, instead of hovering over their kids and overprotecting them, what a snowplow snowplow parent does is goes before the kids and removes all the obstacles, all the snow, if you will, and just makes their path so smooth, which sounds great. But the hard part is that if you make someone's path smooth, they never know how to navigate rough paths. They never learn resilience. They never learn how to be able to navigate disappointment, hurts, and difficulties. And so it's hard, right? Because, because when we release our kids, we either want to hover over them and be helicopters or maybe some of us want to just make the path so smooth and so easy that, oh, they're doing great. And then that problem happens the first time then we do release them to school or we do release them off to college. And there's no one to snowplow for them. Then they start to stumble and hit issues and have concerns. I even read an article that talked about how snowplow parents would go so far as to call their college student kid and wake them up so they don't miss tests. Like making sure that they are just taking away responsibility and just plowing through things so things are too easy for their kids. And not to say that we want things to be hard, but we need our kids to be able to grow. Now, with all of those ideas we're talking about today, we've used uh, Psalm 127 as our theme verse for this series called Arrows. And it's the idea of children are a heritage from the Lord, offspring a reward from him. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are children born in one's youth. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. And we've been using different archery terms uh, over the past three weeks to talk about different family relationships. The notes from the previous week, the main points are on the back of your notes this morning if you want to follow up. Or sorry, um, check those out or get a quick reminder. But today, what we're talking about here is the idea of the importance of the release. That if parenting is a bunch of little releases, that can be really scary when we feel like we're releasing them into a big, bad, scary world. But releases don't have to be scary because when we have our, as parents, when we release our kids, if we are raising them in the Lord, then we're not releasing them out into the world, we're releasing them to live for God in the world. And God has them in his hands. And so there's these many releases that we need to get ready for. But I want to do is show uh, someone who is uh, from our church who um, does archery sent me a couple of slow-mo videos of the, uh, of the release when it happens. And so there's a first one here. So again, there's no sound to it. So just we'll go ahead and play um, the first one that shows the first release here. And so notice how everything is perfectly still. We've talked before last about setting our sights. We talked about the importance of making sure that um, we have just the right aim and everything, living towards the right target. Uh, and the next video, hopefully you'll all recognize uh, this Robin Hood here. Um, if we go ahead, that's Val Ballora. He's And he releases as well, right? So everything is perfectly still. They set their sights and then the release. What a shame it would be if as archers... They would keep the arrow inside and knocked inside the, the, um, the bow and then never release it. 
that they would just feel like, oh, this feels, this feels nice, this feels comfortable, but I don't want to release it. What happens if it gets lost? What happens if it misses the target? And then we just hold on to it, put it, put it back in the quiver. And yet that can be what happens when it comes to the scary feeling we have of releasing our kids out into the world and not sure what that looks like. And so today, our main point for this morning is talking about our parental responsibility. The title is Release, Parental Responsibility. Um, the other word for the release is called loose. Like you say, loose. But I thought like loose parental responsibility. It probably would have been a weird terminology. So I went with release. Um, so release, parental responsibility. And our main point is that our parental responsibility is to raise our kids in the Lord and to release them to live for him. Is to raise our kids in the Lord and to release them to live for him. It's not to keep them in the quiver. It's not to helicopter over them. It's not to snow plow the way for them. It's to raise and then release. Raise and release. Now, we're going to be in two separate sections today um, of the scriptures. And so uh, if you have your Bible, if you want to open up to 1 Samuel 2 on page uh, 418, if you have the church Bible here. And then what I'd like you to do is um, put your bulletin or, or something else in Deuteronomy 6. So we're going to be in 1 Samuel 2, which is on page 418 in the church Bible, and we're going to be in Deuteronomy 6, um, which is on page 284 in the church Bible. Um, and so what I want to do is I'm just going to start reading uh, a story from 1 Samuel 2, to give the context, this is right after Hannah, who had been praying and praying for God to give her a child, and God gave her Samuel after prayer, and then Samuel, she goes and she dedicates him unto the Lord, and he starts to serve with Eli, who is the high priest, and there's this beautiful prayer of thanksgiving that is in the beginning of uh, uh, verse, sorry, 1 Samuel 2, verses 1 through 10. Uh, but what I want to do is I want to take a look at Eli's kids, because Eli was a high priest, but I want to take a look at his kids and how they lived for a few moments here. So if you're following along, 1 Samuel 2, verses 12 through 17. Eli's sons were scoundrels. They had no regard for the Lord. Now it was the practice of the priest that whenever any of the people offered a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come with a three-pronged fork in his hand while the meat was being boiled and would plunge the fork into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. I don't know why they needed four words to say the same thing. It's fine. Um, whatever the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is how they treated all the Israelites who came to Shiloh. But even before the fat was burned... The priest's servant would come and say to the person who was sacrificing, Give the priest some meat to roast. He won't accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. If the person said to him, verse 16, Let the fat be burned first and then take whatever you want, the servant would answer, No, hand it over now. If you don't, I'll take it by force. The sin of the young men was very great in the Lord's sight, for they were treating the Lord's offering with contempt. Now, I need to do a quick few moments of just background work here, but... In Deuteronomy and Leviticus, there's a couple sections and talks about what is the priests serving, what is it that they get to receive out of the offerings. Because in the same way that when you give and you give your tithes and your offerings, that those of us on staff, we live off of those. And I don't take that lightly. We don't spend frivolously all over the place because we recognize that 
uh, we are able to live based off of what you all are able to give. And so we look at this as something that's a, it's a, it's a weighty responsibility for those of us who are on church staff to make sure that we are living as wise stewards. And with that said, what they're talking about is in the scripture, as it explained, that there'd be a pot that would be given or there'd be food that'd be put into a pot. And it was kind of the idea that whatever the Lord wanted to provide, that they would just stick a fork into the meat and whatever came out, that was the priest's portion, but everything else was not to be taken to the, given to the priest. And what the sons were doing, Eli's sons, who are Phineas and Hophni, what they would do is that they would say, no, give us your meat before it's even cooked. And so they didn't want to do it boiled. They said, I want, I want the offering the way that I want it. I want the things the way I want. I'm going to keep the fat, which was specifically dedicated to the Lord. They had no regard for the offering to the Lord, and they were taking it for themselves. It would be like in the same way I just mentioned how I, we get our salary from um, you all being able to give. It would be like that happening and us, me, us getting our normal salary and then at the end of a service on a Sunday morning, me just sticking my hand into the offering bag and just taking whatever else I wanted on top of that and putting it in my pocket. It would be robbing God of the offering. And so it's incredibly wrong. And so it doesn't make sense context for us. What's the difference between boiled meat or between, you know, cooked meat? The point is, is that God had ordained a way for it to be, and the priests' sons, who were Hophni and Phinehas, they were disregarding it. They wanted it their own way, selfishly. And in so doing, they were taking away from God's offering. And we see in other parts of the Bible that that is a devastating sin, to take an offering or to offer something falsely to the Lord. And so with that all said... Eli, as we see here, he wasn't a helicopter parent. He wasn't hovering over his kids to make sure that they were doing everything right. In fact, he wasn't even a snowplow parent that was trying to make things easy for them. He was, he was a parent who was turning a blind eye to what his kids were doing. That we see later on that he eventually addresses them and tells them what you're doing isn't right. But he doesn't stop them. He doesn't remove them from their places of leadership. He doesn't take the responsibility to actually make a change. And so his grown kids are getting to the point where they are now going to be losing, they're going to lose their lives. And we can't have time to go through all of it, but if you read the rest of 1 Samuel 2, you'll hit on, or you'll hear rather, the ways in which, because of Eli's lack of being able to step in as a parent and leading them and saying the hard things sometimes but doing so in love, that it caused his kids to have a shorter life, a less blessed life, and to go against the way that God would have wanted them to live. Now, this story, Eli's sons with Phineas and Hophni, this story as a pastor scares me. Because what it shows me is that being a leader in the house of God and having kids around the house of God doesn't equate that they will know God. They could be around church. They could be around leadership. They could be around certain things. They could go to services. They can know Bible stories. They can do all these things. And just being aware of God is not the same as knowing God. And many of us who have grown up, maybe having been taught a little bit about the Lord or different parts of our journey, maybe it's something where we knew about God, but it wasn't until we knew God that we recognize how much he truly loved us and our faith became our own, not just our parents that by proxy was poured down on us. And so for us to take this opportunity to say this, this causes caution because 
Our kids, they may go to church, they may hear Bible stories, they may know about God, but that doesn't ensure a proper and healthy release into the world for the Lord. And so we must intentionally raise them in the Lord, not just raise them around the Lord. And so what I want to do is we're going to flip over now to Deuteronomy 6, as we kind of had our, our hand in that section as well. We're going to be starting in verse 1. And in your notes, the part talks about raising our kids, uh, and we're going to look at just a few verses um, through Deuteronomy 6 and just saying, what are some of the ways in which Moses tells the people to love the Lord your God? This is a famous passage, but it's one of those where we talk about all the time, love the Lord your God with all your heart and your soul and your mind. But what's amazing is how the context of it isn't just for our own good. Notice the context of why we are to love the Lord with all of our hearts and why we are to obey these commandments. So raising our kids, as we talk about this idea that we want to start our children off in the way that they should go, and in the end, they would not depart from it. They will not turn from it, from Proverbs 22, 6. And so with that in mind, let's read slowly Deuteronomy 6 and look at a few of these points for us today. The first verse is Deuteronomy 6, 1 and 2 say, These are the commands, decrees, and laws the Lord your God directed me to teach you, to observe in the land that you are crossing the Jordan to possess. Why? So that you, your children, and their children after them may fear the Lord your God as long as you live by keeping all his decrees and commands that I give you, and so that you may enjoy long life. And so we look here, the first point that we talk about in, in your notes underneath raising our kids is to fear God's word so you and your kids will enjoy long life. To have a fear of the Lord and a fear of God's word, to obey them, to listen to them, to fear them. And we see here that the reward that we talk about of fearing God's word echoes the Ten Commandments from Deuteronomy 5, 16. It says, to honor your father and your mother as the Lord your God has commanded you, so that you may live long and that it may go well with you in the land the Lord your God is giving you. Again, the obedience of God's commands and Fearing him and his word isn't just for our own good. It isn't just so that we can make sure that we are the ones that are doing a good job and that things are good with us. It's so that our kids and our kids' kids can experience the life that God has for them, can experience a long life. And so when we look at this idea, it reminds us this as well, that we want to make sure that we help our kids to fear God's word and we teach them that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom and we discipline them so that they can enjoy long life. So if they start to go astray, if Eli would have said early on the first time he saw Phineas and Hophni start to do things he knew that they weren't supposed to do, if instead of turning a blind eye, he approached as a parent and said, hey, listen, what you're doing is wrong. And until you've shown me that you can understand the power of being part of serving the Lord and what it means to love the Lord your God, until you can do that, you're not going to be put in the same position of leadership because that affects everybody around you. And so Proverbs 19 talks about the side of the importance of disciplining our kids, to discipline your son, for in that there is hope. Do not be a willing party to his death. Eli, by not disciplining his sons, he would never proclaim this. He would never say, state this, but he was a willing party to the fact that because he did not stand firm and he did not hold them accountable early and often, 
that their lives were cut short because what, what started off as a small disobedience all of a sudden turns into dishonoring the offering of the Lord, which could not be tolerated. And so I know it's hard to kind of navigate. We want to fear God's word. We want to have a healthy fear of who God is because the beginning of the Lord, sorry, fear is the beginning of wisdom. But this isn't a fear like anxiety crippling fear. This is fear is in an awe of the power of God and his word. And so we want to discipline our kids so that they can be aligned, not what's their target. Is it going to be what their kids or what their friends think? Is it going to be what the world tells them? What are the target? What's, what are we setting their sights on? Because even our main point last week was about happiness, but if they set their sights on happiness growing up, they're going to miss. But if they set their sights on Christ-likeness, then they can have both, be more like Christ, and experience true happiness. The next point in your notes as we look at verse 3. Verse 3 says this, Hear, Israel, and be careful to obey, so that it may go well with you, and you may increase greatly in a land flowing with milk and honey, just as the Lord, the God of your ancestors, promised you. So number two, obey God's word so you and your kids will prosper. That the obedience, again, wasn't just, you know, for our own good. The obedience was that there could be prospering and growth and increase. The obedience was so that the kids will then know what it looks like to follow the Lord. And they, too, will want to be impressed upon their own kids about how to follow the Lord. And it becomes this generational obedience, this generational prosperity, and not only prosperity with regards to finances or, or possessions, right? That's part of what they talk about. But this prosperity of recognizing that it's not a prosperity gospel, that, oh, if you believe in Jesus, you're going to have all the money in the world and everything's going to be great. Like, we know that's not how it works, and I heard a pastor say one time, if pastors, if people really believed that and said, hey, if you, if you, um, if it's a prosperity gospel, then they would just give $100 bills to everybody on their way out and be like, listen, you're going to be blessing everybody and you're going to bless us more. Like, this is not how it necessarily works. There are times of plenty. There are times of hardship. The beauty is when we could find what Paul talks about in Philippians 4, how he knows how to be content, whether in need or in plenty. How does he find that ability to be content? Philippians 4.13 says that he, he can do all things through Christ who gives him strength. So again, it's not about prosperity, only money. But we do see in Proverbs 3, talking to a son, saying, My son, do not forget my teaching, but keep my commands in your heart, for they will prolong your life many years and bring you peace and prosperity. That obeying God's word isn't just for the moment. It's to be able to experience joy, prosperity, and a long life. Number three, model what it means to love God first and foremost. Model what it means to love God first and foremost. Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 and 5. Here's the famous passage here that Jesus quoted. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. In verse 5, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. For some of us, when we look at loving God first and foremost, we're going to be saying, okay, we need to show our kids that we love God more than, than our money, more than our careers, more than our success, more than our promotions, more than uh, the house that we live in. It's possessions. Maybe for some of us, it's we're going to show, God, or show our kids that we love God more than what other people think of us, our popularity, or more than our performance and how good we are. We have all these different types of, of idols and things that 
we want to show, okay, we need to show that God is first, God is foremost, that God doesn't take back seats, that God is a jealous God, but he's not jealous of us. He's jealous for us because he knows that putting anything other than him first and foremost will cause ruin and heartache and wounding. And so he's jealous for us to say, no, 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 listen, I need to be number one because I love you so much that in order for you to experience the life that is long and blessed and have prosperity, in order for you to live the life I want for you to have that is able to be life to the full, in order for you to do that, I need to be first. And that could sound bad from anybody else, but when it comes from God, we need to recognize that he's the only one that has the right to say that he should be first and foremost in all of our lives, because he's the one who knew us from the first, breathed life into us from the foremost while we were in our mother's womb, and he released us into the world to have relationship with him. And so we see this idea that for some of us, it's those things, but for some of us, especially when we kind of have younger kids, For some of us, we have to model that we love God even more than the people in our family, even more than our kids, that our kids' wants and wishes and desires, I want this, I want that, or I want to do that, or, you know, I want to live my life this way. If it's contrary to the word of God, we should not set our sights on our kids' happiness and expect that to produce Christ-likeness. We as the parents, we set our sights on Christ's likeness and we say, kids, I understand that's what you want and you may not get it now, you may not understand it now, but this is what you need is to fix your eyes on the author and perfecter of our faith, to set your sights on Jesus for he is the author of our faith. So what does it look like to model what it means to love God first and foremost? It's not just to say it. Because as parents, we could say, love the Lord your God, and then we could go and deny him by our lifestyles. And who are the people who will see through our our masks first? Our kids. The ones who model what we do, who mimic how we act. That when Shailen was like 18 months, I remember I would like, bump my shoulder or something, this is not my shoulder, this is my elbow, bump my my elbow or something on on the kitchen counter or something. I'm like, ugh. Like, I would just have this, like, oh, like, just this emotional, like, ugh. And then Elise at, like, 18, or Shaylin at 18 months would, like, do something. She'd be like, ugh. I'm like, wait. <laughs> Where did you get that from? And now, like, when I'm, like, teasing them, they'll, like, tease me back. I'm like, where did you learn to tease? Like, you. <laughs> I was like, yep. Because they model, they see what we do, and they will take steps in the same footprints that we take steps in. So if we tell them, hey, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and we live as if God isn't first in our lives, they'll hear one thing, follow our lead, and it'll only cause frustration. And they'll get mad at God because of the way that we aren't living out what it means to love God. Because they'll think that There's something duplicitous about faith, that it's not real because it's not impacting my parents, so how's it going to impact me? And so we have to model that, exemplify it, live it out. Number four, verses five, or sorry, six and seven. These commandments that I give you today are to be on your hearts. Again, why? Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Listen, talk about God's word with your kids often. Talk about it. 
You don't need to be a biblical scholar, a seminary graduate, or a paid pastor in order to just talk about God's word. It's as simple as seeing a sunrise and recognizing, isn't it amazing that every day, this is the day the Lord has made? Right? Psalm 118.24, you just say, man, son, daughter, isn't it great that the Lord made this day? Man, I hope you have a great day. It could be seeing a sunset and just saying like, oh man, how beautiful this is to see how God paints the sky. Maybe it's something where you say, you know, every morning our mercies are, his mercies are new to us. Maybe it's something where you just are going on a walk and you see the seasons change and you just start to talk about how, oh man, isn't it crazy how things that, that were once dead, like these trees, they're beautiful and then they die and then all of a sudden come next year, they come back to life. Like that's the picture of death and resurrection. I mean, if we have our eyes and our ears and our hearts open and we're proactively looking at it rather than reactively looking at our phones all the time, we can have the ability to see places, to connect God's word, not just to Sunday mornings when they're at church or Wednesday nights if they go to Faith Rock, not just to Thursday nights if they go to Optic Youth, but to connect God's word to everyday life. So it's not, God's word isn't a church thing, it's a life thing. And we do it each and every day. We look for ways to connect each and every day God's word to our lives because we want to help them have a firm foundation for life. But if they're only with us two to three hours a week, and they're with you the other 167, 165, who's going to have the bigger impact? We can supplement what you are already doing. If we are the only ones, if the church is the only place where people are, your kids are learning God's word, then it's saying, hey, we're expecting them to eat only once or twice a week, and hopefully they'll just grow up and be healthy. No, 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 we need to be feeding them God's word at all times. It doesn't have to be heavy-handed. You don't have to have a seven-point you know, point sermon or anything crazy. But it can be something where you just connect daily life to God's Word. Just talk about it while you're going on your walk, while you're lying down, while you're in your house, while you're out and about. And then number five, verses eight and nine tell us this. It says, tie them as a symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. And this talks about this idea of give God's Word in your notes, a prominent place in your home. Just give them a prominent place. Does it mean that, you know, every single wall has to have scripture written on it? No, 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 no. But, you know, one of the things when we got our home, we were looking at places and we found this place in Escondido and we ended up looking and seeing as we're checking the house out, on the very front, there was a door knocker that said, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And we're like, oh, man, this is so cool. And, and when we bought the house, we found out that the people we bought it from were Christians, and the people they bought it from were a pastor's family. So it was like from a pastor's family to a Christian home to another pastor's family. And so this is beautiful moment. And so it's so great to be able to see, as for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord. Just that scripture is prominent. But we try to have scripture in different places in our homes. You can listen to worship music throughout your home. You can have your kid, tell your kids when you're reading the Bible or how you're doing it, have a Bible prominently displayed. I mean, and so when I do my quiet time, I've talked about it with Steph. If I have my quiet time on my phone, which often is a reading plan through the Bible app, the kids don't know if I'm reading the Bible. They don't know if I'm checking sports. They don't know if I'm playing a game, right? So it's like, what does it look like to just have the word of God be in a prominent place in our lives and in our home so that the kids see it at all times? And then number six, this one's going to be a little bit longer, but this point Jumps down to verse 20 and says, share what God has done, both in his word and in your life. This is what Moses says. 
talk about the importance of sharing with, the, uh, with our kids. In the future, verse 20 of Deuteronomy 6, when your son asks you, what is the meaning of the stipulations, decrees, and laws the Lord our God has commanded you? Tell him, we were slaves of Pharaoh in Egypt, but the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Before our eyes, the Lord sent signs and wonders great and terrible on Egypt and Pharaoh and his whole household. But he brought us out from there to bring us in and give us the land he promised an oath to our ancestors. The Lord commanded us to obey all these decrees and to fear the Lord our God so that we might always prosper and be kept alive, as is the case today. And if we are careful to obey all this law before the Lord our God as he has commanded us, that will be our righteousness." Notice that this verse doesn't say, well, what happens when your sons ask you, what was this for? Notice that verse 21 doesn't say, tell him because I said so. Tell him just listen and obey. Right, right? No, no, no. It's talking about this idea of share a story. That the Israelite dads were gonna, or parents were going to tell their kids, listen, we were once slaves and God set us free. And he said, in order for us to keep living that free life and not go back into a cycle of slavery to sin, that we could be able to live according to his word. And by doing so, we can live a life that's abundant and prosperous and free. That's why we have God's word. Because some of us, when we have restrictions or we have things that, that you know, rules or regulations, some of us are... Um, we see it like, a, how many of you, like, when you have rules, people tell you what to do, you see it as, like, a straitjacket, and you feel like, I just got to get out, I just need to, like, you know, don't t- try to tell me how to live my life. Okay, I was going to say no one, that's great. Um, makes my sermon much easier. Uh, no, um, but no, the idea of, like, you know, you're restricted, like, you know, let me break free, let me learn, let me grow, let me spread my wings. Other people will see rules as, like, a seatbelt that just keeps them safe as they move forward in life, Right? And so when it comes to God's word, you're going to have kids that will think either one of those ways. You might think either one of those ways. So tying the why of obeying God's word to because I said so, well, once they stop wanting to hear everything that we as parents say, that's not going to have as much water. If it's because this is what God has done and let me share a story that connects the why to something deeper and longer lasting, not to our word, but to God's word and his goodness. So every year... Um, I gave my life to the Lord September 20th, 2003. And so we've had this tradition uh, for several years. I started with another person at my uh, previous church who they gave their life to the Lord uh, September 20th, 2001. So our church staff, some of our team, we would go to Chick-fil-A and we're like, let's go to Chick-fil-A on September 20th. And it's called Chick-fil-A Salvation Day. And so we just go and we just celebrate. We have food together. And we're like, yeah, let's just eat, you know chicken strips and have honey mustard sauce. It'll be great. Um, but so what we've done as a family is we've started to continue that trend. So I have the past three ones. So from 2017, this is us in Upland. Um, and so you can just see like how little the girls are. It's crazy. Um, and then the next week or the next year, um, we had this one was when we were in the Poway house. Uh, and if you could see in the, there's a little post-it there. It says Chick-fil-A Salvation Day. That was someone from my old church. Uh, the team like sent me um, like Chick-fil-A sauces to use on Chick-fil-A Salvation Day, like six months ahead of time. Really sweet. Don't look into the fact that the Chick-fil-A sauce was still really good after six months. I don't want to think about it. So uh, we had that, so we were able to celebrate. And then uh, this past year was very special. It just happened a couple weeks ago uh, because um, I got my very own. You can see a happy birthday dada there on that sign. And then here I got a very special hat. Uh, that says uh, Chick-fil-A, Salva- it says Happy Salvation Day, Dada, which is super sweet. And so we we're going over there. We didn't want to get dinner, so we got dessert. And so I'm wearing the hat, and it's a little big, and that's okay. That's why I didn't drive. Steph drove, because it would have. And 
um, we're going in there, and the people, like, take our order, and then one of the, the persons, like, coming to talk to us is like, okay, you're all good to go? I'm like, yeah, like, okay, great. Also, I love your hat. And I'm like, I love it. And so Shaylin, you know, made that hat for me, and it was just so sweet. And it's a reminder that every year on this time, not that we don't talk about our lives before, but it's, a, it's an easy way for us to celebrate with our kids what God has done in my life and in, my, in Steph's life as well, of how he's changed our life with salvation, how that changes the way we live, and how we celebrate that. That that's something to rejoice in and to get good food and to wear awesome hats and to be able to just say, this is a good thing. Let's talk about, let's share what God has done in his word, in the, in the Bible, but also in our own lives and giving a testimony to that to our kids. So they know that their parents' faith isn't something on a Sunday morning. It's something that changes how they live every day of their lives. And because if we raise them that well, then we can release them knowing they have a firm foundation for life. Now, we've spent the several minutes looking at how to ra raising our kids. Now, what I want to do is have you go back to 1 Samuel 2 for the last few moments we have together. Because this is a section about releasing our kids. That if our primary responsibility as parents is to raise our kids in the Lord and then release them to live for him, then let's look at another group of parents and another kid here in 1 Samuel 2. That we looked at Eli and we looked at his wicked sons, Phineas and Hophni. But now we want to look at Elkanah, who's the husband, and then Hannah, who's the mom, to Samuel. That they prayed, she prayed for Samuel, and she wanted Samuel. And then when she got Samuel, did she keep him in her quiver? No, no. Did she hold on to him forever? Did she renege on the promise that she made to God? No, no. She released him to live for him. Released him to serve in the priestly service. And so we see that there are several instances. We can't read through them all now. But if you looked at 1 Samuel 2, 18 through 26, there are three times in which they talk about Phineas and Hophni, and they say, but Samuel ministered before the Lord in verse 18. Or, but meanwhile, Samuel started to grow in wisdom. It shows an intentional contrast, verses 18, 21, and 26, I believe, an intentional contrast between the wicked sons of Eli and Samuel and how he was following the Lord. What did it look like to be released? Well, what did Phineas, what did Phineas, what does Hophni Nope, that, even that's not right. What does Hannah do? <laughs> Forgive me. I keep looking at their names. I'm like, don't say their names. Sorry. Um, <laughs> number one, just write in your notes. Never stop praying for and encouraging them in the Lord. Never stop praying and encouraging them in the Lord. That um, I'm reading a book or one of the things I'm doing for the girls is I write journals for them and prayer journals. Uh, and one of the journals I'm using is um, based off of the prayers from Power of a Praying Parent by Stormy a a Martin, I believe. Um, and it's this idea of like, even as adult, with adult kids, we can pray for our kids, that we could go before them and be able to intercede on their behalf. And this idea that we know that she, Hannah was a woman of prayer from 1 Samuel 1, 1 Samuel 2, but like Hannah, we must never stop praying for our kids. Doesn't matter if they're nine days old Nine years old, 19 years old, 59 years old, whatever age our kids are, God has entrusted them to us. And so we pray for them. We lift them up before our Father. 
and we lift and we pray for them. But he, she doesn't just pray for Samuel. She never stopped praying, but also never stopped encouraging them. That 1 Samuel 2, 18 and 19 say this. But Samuel, one of those comparisons, he says, but Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy wearing a linen ephod. An ephod would be what the priest was wearing. And so it's basically like he's trying to take after, he's trying to wear the garments of the priest. He's following after a priestly service. Continues on, verse 19. Each year his mother made him a little robe and took it to him when she went up with her husband to offer the annual sacrifice. That she was encouraging him in his walk. That she was helping him to grow. And, and I can only imagine that she sees her kid once a year and then she comes back and she tries to picture, you know, I wonder how much he's grown since I saw him last. I wonder if he's grown in stature so much I need to make a really big one. And, and so she ends up making a robe, but I can only imagine how much every time she's making that robe, how many prayers are going up for her kid. Samuel, how many times is she thinking about him? How many times is she wondering how he's growing? But she goes and she's intentionally fulfilling her promise to the Lord by releasing him to the service, but also is coming alongside him and praying for him, encouraging him by giving him clothes, by letting him know that she cares for him and loves him and is with him and prays for him. So our kids are never too old to know that they are prayed for, cared for, and loved. We could just say those words. There might be enmity in relationships. There might be brokenness. They may follow the Lord. They may not. But we could tell them that they're loved. We can show them that they're loved. And so we can encourage them. When things come up, they have questions, we can encourage them about the power and the beauty of following Jesus. Number two, remember, just as Hannah did, remember that our kids were God's before they were ours. That God looked down upon and was making each of our kids and was forming them and then thought to himself, not who would be perfect parents, because there are no such thing, but who would be the best parents for them? Not that they'll get everything right, not that everything will go smoothly, but if God looked down and he saw Shaylin and Elise and he thought that me and Steph, Steph and I would be the best parents for them, well then I know I don't know everything, but I can hopefully take heart in knowing that God knew everything and he entrusted these beautiful, precious, intelligent girls to us. You, even if you have a a, a difficult relationship where things aren't always smooth, you're still their parents. You still have a voice in their lives. And even if you don't feel like you have a voice directly in their lives, you can lift your voice up to the heavens and God can work in such a way that God can help change their lives. And our prayers can be part of that process. God, they were gods before they were ours. Here's what we see from Hannah just early in 1 Samuel 1. I prayed for this child and the Lord has granted me what I asked of him. So now I give him, or for our purposes, I release him to the Lord. For his whole life, he will be given over or released to the Lord, and he worships the Lord there. So I know that as parents, we're not perfect. I know it's tough. And I just want to encourage all of us as parents, because there's a lot of guilt that can come when talking about this. And I just want to encourage you that God... There are no perfect parents, but God is a perfect father. And I remember reading in a book that he's a perfect parent, a perfect father, and yet even he has kids who rebel. 
even he has kids, that it's not about how perfect he is as a parent. His kids can still go off and choose their own way. That we can do the best that we can doesn't mean we're going to be perfect. No one is. But what it does mean is that God has entrusted them to us. So if we still are here and they're still here, we have an opportunity to pour into them and to pray for them and to not stop being parents to them, even when they're older. So as we close, if you still have kids in the house, if that's the life stage you're in, well, then this sermon, just go through Deuteronomy 6 and start incorporating some of those things. You don't have to do all six or seven of them right off the bat. You could, but just start following Deuteronomy 6 pattern of how to show our love uh, for the Lord to our kids. Some of you in this room, you want kids and you haven't been able to have them. Whether that means that you um, are having problems just getting pregnant, whether it means that you are um, not married yet and you want to have kids. I mean, I don't know all the life um, different dynamics, but I know that for some of you, that's a really hard thing. So listen to the sermon you know, yeah, there's, there's points I can take hold of, but it hits a, a nerve, it hits a wound. And so if that's you, I just encourage you to take heart that Hannah, when Hannah prayed, yeah, she got what she wanted after a while to have a kid. But the point isn't, is the fact that she prayed persistently. She turned to the Lord and he answered her. And it talks about how he remembered her, that God has not forgotten you. He remembers you. He sees your wounds. He sees the heartache. And so just know he still deeply loves you. And that's not some sort of moratorium on you that you'd be a bad parent, that you don't have kids. It's just part of the journey, and God is with you. Lean into your father in the midst of this. And some of you, you don't have kids in the home because they've already grown up. And they are often, they're living their own lives. Maybe that's good. Maybe that's hard. It's never too late to let them know, like we said, that, you're, that they are prayed for, cared for, and loved. But there is still hope. There is still an opportunity to be their parents because it doesn't matter how old you are. To hear your parents say, I'm lo- I love you, I'm proud of you, so thankful that God entrusted you to me. Oh, that fills the heart of a son or a daughter. Some of us probably long to hear those words from our parents. And whether we heard those words or not, we can pass those words on to others. And perhaps some of you today just feel guilty that you didn't do the things from Deuteronomy 6 when your kids were kids. And they're grown up and they're living a life that, that is different from what you would have set your sights on had you had a choice. Release. You must release shame and guilt all of us could have done better things i look at the things with the girls that you know i've said something a certain way or i've been short with them or i've you know whatever it is and i look back like why did i do that i I shouldn't have done that and i can either let that become a shame that now makes me oh well i'm just a bad parent so i'm going to disengage i'm not going to care i'm going to remove myself i can have it become guilt that i did something wrong so much that i'm now i don't know what to do and i'm paralyzed When we release our kids, we need to release our kids unto God to live for him. And we need to do our best to release the guilt of ways we've fallen short. Because God's mercies are new every morning. When we confess our sins, he is righteous and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. We can say, God, I may not have been a great parent when my kids were growing in the house. I'm 
dedicated to be a good parent now. Build a bridge where there was no bridge. Make a way where there is no way. Build a relationship deeper when one may not have been able to do so. So lastly, I want to turn your attention. There's one more video uh, that I want to show you, and it's called the Archer's Paradox video. And so if we could go ahead and just play that, it might be a little hard to see, um, but I want you to try to look at the arrow right in the center of the screen, and then can you see how it just went by? Did you see that part? Okay, awesome. Um, is it possible to play one more time? Is that okay? All right, great. Okay, let's do it one more time. I want you to keep an eye on it and notice the flight pattern of the arrow. If you, it may be a little hard to see, but if you notice, it's called the archer's paradox. It's not something where the arrow just goes straight to the target. What it does is it kind of wobbles this way, and it's called a paradox because even though it's wobbling, it's doing so so consistently that it still hits the target where it's supposed to be. Val, he, said, he summed it up this way. The way the arrow bows and flexes back and forth during flight is called the archer's paradox. It actually wobbles while it's turning, so it's kind of a wobbling spiral, but it does it so consistently it hits the mark. And he says it's kind of like our lives. We have to just focus on the target and not worry about what it looks like when we're getting bounced around by the wind. That as parents, we're going to release our kids, and there's going to be times where it's wobbling, and we're not sure how it's looking. There are going to be times when we look at them like, this, this is going to fall short. They're going to do this. It's going to be like that. But if we're continuing to set our sights on Christ's likeness, and we go on there, that in the end, if we train our kids in the way they should go, that in the end, they will not depart from it. That if we do the best we can to raise them well, and then we release them well, we're not releasing them into a scary world. We're releasing them into a good, good father's hands. And so, as we close, just that reminder, we got to let go of guilt, not allow guilt to cause us to be a slave of fear anymore, but know that in the same way that when we release our kids to God, that we must release ourselves, that we are no longer slaves to fear, that we too are children of God, deeply loved by the Father. Lord, we thank you for who you are. We pray that you would um, speak to us today, Lord. Uh, God, I pray that as we are talking about parenting and families and different dynamics and how hard that can be. Lord, I know some of us here had really rough childhoods, and so knowing how to be a good parent, we're learning through you and through examples, but not from our own experience. God, I pray that you would embolden people and encourage them. I pray for people who have had kids who are grown up and they feel guilty or they feel um, broken, but Lord, I pray that you would make a way where there is no way and that guilt would be released, that we would no longer be slaves to our feelings of guilt or fear or shame, but that we would know that we are your children and you've trusted us with your children. So God, may we be able to love them well and love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength to model that so that our kids would even notice the change in our lives and that then they would be turned to the Father and give him praise. So Lord, I pray that as we worship you now, God, that we would take heart, that no matter what season we are in, no matter what we are going through, that we have the opportunity to raise our kids, and if we don't have kids, we can raise spiritual kids in the Lord, and to release them unto you, that we wouldn't hold our kids back as helicopters or snowplow them, but Lord, instead, we would release them into your hands. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.
with you guys. Um, before I do that, I just want to quick share. Uh, for those of you who don't know, my name's Dan. I'm the youth pastor here. And my wife's been battling a pretty aggressive cancer for the better part of this last year. Um, she's been unable to be here for uh, the last couple months. Um, and I've been at home caring for her. And I just wanted to say thank you guys so much for everything, every card, every prayer, every gift, it goes so, so far. Um, we feel every prayer. Um, it is our joy to be in this season with this church. Um, and so I get to share the benediction today. Um, just a little word of encouragement um, from what God's been doing in our lives, my heart uh, with you all today is in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16 through 18. It says, Therefore, we do not lose heart, but though our outer man is decaying, yet our inner man is being renewed day by day. For momentary, light affliction is produced for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at things which are seen, but at things which are not seen, for the things which are seen are temporal, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And so I'm very, very happy to be with you guys this morning. It's very good to see you all. Um, we love you all dearly. Um, and I just wanted to quick let you know that God is providing us the grace, thankfulness, and the joy that we need each day. And that is our prayer for you guys as well. That is, no matter where we are, no matter where you are this morning, no matter where you thought you were coming into this morning, when you thought you were coming to church, no matter what God's been doing in your life, that this is a place where you get to experience that grace, that love, that joy, and that thankfulness of getting to know Jesus Christ as your Savior. And so we love you all dearly. Uh, we hope that you join us next week as JP continues the Arrow series. Thank you so much. Have a great week.